Welcome to the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast, where we explore the diversity of Arctic knowledge. In this podcast, we amplify the voices of scholars and experts from around the world to make the Arctic easy and accessible to everyone. So tune in and join our in-depth conversations that take you beyond the headlines and right into the latest ideas, challenges and experiences from the Arctic. Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of the Arctic Institute's Bookshelf podcast. As always, my name is Romain Schiffer. And I'm Luba Timoyna. And the topic of today's episode is a bit different from our usual Arctic conversations. But fear not, there's a link. Today, we're having a conversation with Professor Prabhakar Singh about the Himalaya and international law. Prabhakar, thank you so much for accepting our invitation and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Roman and Lioba. It's an honor to be here. I'm particularly pleased that you found my research, ongoing research, of some value um, uh, in relation to uh, the Arctic Institute, although I do not research on the Arctic. I research on something that is similar to the Arctic, and as you pointed out before, um, it is often called the third pole besides the two other poles. Um, it has taken some time for me to realize that I am very close to one of the three poles of the world, a view uh, which is as recent as a few years ago. Um, and uh, it has only happened, I think, partially because of COVID when I was stuck in my hometown. And in my hometown, when I was there after 20 years, you know, you know 20 years, I returned after 20 years, uh, uh, you know, to live there for months because usually you go there for a few days or a week and then you come back. So living there for a year after 20 years meant that I, all my friends were out. The streets were new. The shops were new. The whole small town is transformed. And you look at it now as an academic, not as, not as a kid who grew up there. And things begin to transform. I think magic realism happens there. Because at some point in my small hometown, uh, which had become cleaner because of COVID, um, I was walking. And while walking, I had this sense that if, if only I turned my back to Delhi and faced the Himalaya that is in the north, international law to me is 60 kilometers away, whereas constitutional law is 1,200 kilometers away in Delhi. That was the magic realist moment. It happened on the back of the fact that in the last winters with my father and my mom and one of my aunts, I drove to Nepal in our own car. As Indians, we can drive into Nepal um, um, without visas, uh, n- not even passport necessary. You just have to have even Indian regular, like your any of those you know, license, you know, driving license, any of the basic identif- identification uh, uh, certificates or documents you can just walk into nepal drive into nepal and the nepalese government charges a very bare minimum fee you know less than three dollars for entry six days entry and because i belong to the region um indo nepal you know the border region where um, the cultural spillovers on both sides of the border we speak the same language in fact the my mother tongue is the second language of nepal so naturally for me uh, india and nepal both are very different from what people from Delhi would imagine. 
And it was because of the COVID-induced restriction that I invested so much on discovering things about my hometown um, that got tied into my larger project of semi-colonialism and international law. Uh, because before turning to Nepal, that is to my immediate north, only 60 kilometers away from my hometown, I'd studied China, I'd studied Thailand. And it struck me that while I had focused so much on semi-colonial countries so far away from my hometown, if not from India, because we touch borders with China as well, uh, I had never thought enough about Nepal. So that is how I completely, completely sort of turned to Nepal, having looked at Thailand and China. And I began to see, uh, uh, I began to see that these are the countries that have had similar experiences within Asia. And one of the mistakes, as it were, of the uh, colonialism and international law project, the critical pro uh, uh, legal law project in international law, has been to actually paint all of Asia and Africa with the same thick brush of colonialism, which is not accurate. India and Nepal have had two different colonial experiences. That is, India has been full colony of England. Nepal was not colonized. Therefore, effectively, Nepal is more ancient than India today. Thank you so much for this very nice background story that is also like very personal in many ways. And I guess many of us who, um, during especially the last couple of years, had to stay in the places where we actually end, uh, ended up. Um, we really opened our eyes to what's around us, right? And all the experiences and stories around us that we didn't really look at before. So that was very nice. So let's just write, uh, let's just jump right into your research that you mentioned. And my first question to you, before we actually um, talk a little bit more in depth about your chapter that we have for today, is uh, a general one, uh, so that our listeners can have a better understanding of the conversations that we're having. And I don't think that we have that before, Roman. Uh, the notion of uh, semi-colonialism. Could you please tell us more about that and how you perhaps came to this topic as well? Thank you for this question. Semi-colonialism uh, is a term uh, uh, which uh, is uh, Leninist in its origin. It was used by Lenin after the Russian Revolution. And it was borrowed by Mao uh, from Lenin to depict the Chinese situation. And uh, if, you, if you walk that path, if you walk from Russia to China and, and how China or Mao saw Lenin as his figurative elder brother and Russia, the figurative elder brother uh, country to China, um, you can see how uh, the idea of semi-colonialism has moved fr from Russia to China and we shared borders with China. So India um, had full colonialism and what Mao under the influence of Lenin was trying to explain to the world was that unlike India, for example, we were never a full colony. That's one way to look at it. But this is, but this, uh, this, uh, this distinction is not, uh, 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 this distinction actually can be uh, seen also from older 
uh, archival British documents. So if you look at, for instance, the debates, um, uh, older debates in England where the native English were criticizing um, the British rule of India, they would make distinction between the rule in India versus rule relationship with China. So in other words, if I were to give you the distinction between colonialism and semi-colonialism in a, in, a, in a sentence, the distinction is that in full colonialism, you also govern the territory, whereas in semi-colonialism, you govern the port, therefore the treaty port system. In other words, India was governed completely territorially, whereas semi-colonialism started from the relations of extraterritoriality, governing the port, governing, you know, saying to Asian countries that since we are better laws and if Indians are in China, then we will ensure that it is not the Chinese law that is applicable on the English, but our laws. Number one, number two, that will govern the port, which means they began to control not all of the territory, but what comes in and comes out of that country, which meant that at a lesser investment of persons and resources, you're making more profits. Thank you so much uh, for, for this very short definition. And I think uh, this is quite, I mean, useful for our listeners as well. And even for me, when I, when I read your chapter, uh, I think it's use, always useful to go back to a very, very simple definition. So we invited you today to talk about uh, the chapter we had the privilege to have a sneak peek at, uh, Goddesses, Rivers, Mountains, Omnipresence over Universalization in the Himalayan State. And maybe for people who've listened to the podcast before, they might know that I really, really enjoy when people write well, um, when there's a poetic flow to, to, the, to, to the writing. So perhaps before going into the substance, I'd like to take a step back and ask you about your writing process. Because, I mean, this is quite striking and I hope people will go and read the book when, when it's finally out uh, in, the, in the world. What is your writing process like? And what was your intention with trying to be so, to bring almost some, poesy in your work in the in your writing style thank you for this question i i must say that i primarily enjoy writing um uh, reading and writing so when well i became legal scholar later but i always liked literature a lot but uh, english literature came to me much later because uh, because of my positionality and geography um, uh, so but i grew up reading a lot of hindi literature and also regional lit literature, the Mathili uh, literature, which is the regional language we speak and also that is spoken in Nepal. So a lot of regional and Hindi uh, national literature, English literature came to me later. But at the law school, I began to realize that I actually like to write. And then um, that, you know, and as I moved, uh, sort of, I got more and more convinced about the fact that I want to become an academic. Naturally, I invested more in writing. But I was also interested not just in prose, but also poetry. So I think the literature part, the, 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 my sort of encounters since the childhood with prose and poetry was always remained with me. Um, and through master's and PhD, um, you know, when I became more and more sure about my subject, when I identified my subject, I thought it is my duty to speak to my audience, my assumed audience in a language that is that only does not only transfer knowledge but also keeps them engaged i think it is criminal to bore your readers and i really take care of the fact that if someone is investing a few hours in my writing he or she 
should also be entertained uh, beyond transferring some information or knowledge. So I really um, kind of uh, take writing sort of uh, seriously in that sense. But of course, this is easier said than done. How do I construct it is your question. In order to construct my writing, I I try to uh, I try to read literature uh, a lot, and of course more and more English literature because I'm writing in English. Um, so I try to uh, read contemporary uh, works of literature, particularly Asia-centric work, and I think that in the last three or four years has actually helped me to uh, give better words to my imagination, so to speak. Sometimes I sometimes we imagine better, but we do not express it as clearly as we imagine. So eventually, for all writers, uh, uh, it is a challenge to always balance their imagination with expression. Uh, imagination comes from your mind, your observation, but expression is constructed. So the more you work on uh, developing your language and sort of uh, practice, then I think it, it comes out that way. In the last one year, I try to play with form and I publish to Two, po two, two poems in one of India's leading journals. So that gave me the confidence uh, to think that I don't only think, but I can also perform by uh, perform with the text. I can uh, play with the form. I can express myself in multiple forms. So I wrote a short story. That's that's when this chapter began. So this chapter actually begins begins with a magic realist uh, short story about how. New York Times is available to me only at a distance of 60 kilometers, whereas it is not published in India. So, if I, so, for my, so my internationalism is a very dusty territorial kind of uh, internationalism that comes from a country that is poorer than India, comes through Nepal. So that was the magic realist moment during COVID and coming up with this story of uh, uh, New York Times uh, crossing borders uh, and reaching to me in Darbhanga, my hometown, whereas people can't read in Delhi. So I have better quality of information right in Darbhanga, which people don't have in Delhi. Uh, and, and, and so therefore, um, I played with form to write a short story to express that feeling. I published a uh, a poem on on farmers, and, you know, because I live in Sonipat, and if you look around, this is a university planted in 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 between fields. It, it was it was a village. It still is a village, uh, you know. Here, so I wrote. So I used to see this change of seasons, and you know, farmers working in the field, and in the winters, in the summers, during springs. So I wrote a piece on that, and I think the combination of having written a po two poems and a short story kind of completely catapulted me to really not be afraid of the form and express myself in the form of a prose, which is now 54 pages. I find it absolutely amazing. Uh, and I think it's so valuable, especially for our young readers or early career researchers who still try to explore, you know, different formats and forms and really find their ways into, into their research and to into their place, perhaps, within this academic community, right? And uh, I personally will absolutely take this quote um, that it's criminal to bore your readers <laughs> from this talk. I found it absolutely fascinating, and it's so true. And perhaps as a follow-up to this, um, so I think in your work, maybe it's fair to say, and you can correct me, you're trying to recenter um, the Himalayan region in international law 
also using, I mean, going back into history and looking at the law that was there before, uh, before colonialism, also before international law, before the, the law of nations. Do you think the form that you're writing in, so this very liberated form, helps you recenter the the people of the Himalayan region and also the law and the lit- and and the culture of uh, of the Himalaya when looking at th- when looking at it or at them through the lens of international law indeed i think one of the biggest problems uh, or challenges in post colonialism is to actually unlearn when we say unlearn what are we unlearning we are unlearning colonial forms colonial forms of knowledge um, and naturally, if that unlearning has to happen, and as we say in continental Europe, this deconstruction, whatever word you choose, either deconstruction or unlearning, I think unlearning is much more poetic than deconstruction. Uh, so if you go with the word unlearning, um, I think unlearning, the first unlearning is that of actually uh, unlearning the forms in which knowledge is actually presented to us. And uh, 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 so, so that is the first part. And it is because of that that you will see, as you say, a liberated form of writing comes because I'm completely, completely unlearning the older, older form. In fact, in established writing, I'm, I find poetic expressions. So my first chapter, if you, uh, it begins with a quote from Judge Wellington Koo, who is actually talking about rivers um, and uh, spring thaw and rivers meeting the sea and his relationship, and he's drawing a comparison with the formation of custom or the international law. I would not have found this quote had I not kind of big, uh, started unlearning uh, the established forms of expressing uh, the knowledge of international law. The second finding that came uh, through this process was to stop thinking in terms of universalization. The whole logic of universalization is that international was born in Europe, and then from there it moved from Europe to the rest of the world. So if we were to actually again discredit or discard the pursuit of universalism, what should we replace it with? And I think if you start thinking about law being present everywhere, and you know, and maybe for a moment this is more of a spiritual kind of a perception, I'm not going there, but all I'm saying, just think about it, it being present, omnipresent. So it means that law has always been present in some forms. I'm not saying they are good or bad. Customs can be bad. Customs are regressive and therefore we need statutory modernity. India is an example of how customary laws were replaced by statutory modernity. We need it. So I'm not getting into the, the sort of that argument. All I'm saying is that if we were to completely, completely roll back universal discourses on universalism, you will find some amount of omnipresence present in these lands. If you delve deeper, you realize that in this part of the world, knowledge is privy to the, is, is knowledge is slave or is tied to geography. It is not that the knowledge is imposed from outside, but it is that its geography, the unique geography of the Himalayas actually allows the reception of knowledge in a certain way. And the latest work on Himalayan geography and international relations is saying precisely this. The latest work on Himalayas and international relations says that this is not a typical, let's say, Treaty of Westphalia kind of a peace uh, scenario where armies are meeting in the flats. It is not. It is very difficult to be European and have always lived in Europe and imagine the nature 
of Himalayan territory, which I call uh, origami territory. Origami, as you know, is, in, is a Japanese art form where we fold paper. So if you imagine Himalayan territory, my hometown, if you start walking from my hometown, walking northwards from my hometown, the territory, the land rises in an origami fold. That's what I'm saying. And uh, as if it's uh, it's a folded paper, art paper, right? And therefore it is uneven in a very different sense. And IR discourse, the latest IR discourse says that the nature of the geography will determine the kind of clashes we have, right? And this means that we really have to, as we say, problematize the idea of disputes within international law, uh, idea of disputes that will have, which are often sui generis because of the geography. So the problem with universalization is that you're always going to use European lens uh, to generalize about international law. And we keep throwing our dissent that, of course, falls flat on uh, sort of European minds because they are not able to think beyond European forms. We have to be here. Therefore, anthropologists and sociologists, I think, produce better quality knowledge than international lawyers. I totally agree with you. I think when we look at legal geographers or even geographers or sociologists or anthropologists, their, their research is much more maybe human as well, like very, Precisely. very centered on, on the, on the not statist. Exactly, exactly. And and I think I think that's something that really um, is very telling in, in your research as well is that you have a very non-statist perspective, and and just this idea of omnipresence is is non-statist in 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 its um yeah in its form I guess I'm curious of how would you and I mean maybe this is a question about how to universalize omnipresence which <laughs> question but how do you think we could apply omnipresence or this concept of omnipresence of law to other regions of the globe what would it take for researchers of international law and other branches and disciplines to try to take this concept and apply it to i'm going to say the arctic for example but this could be any other regions of 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 the planet as well so one of our primary battles um, with international law is to displace state centrism right and post-colonial governments have simply uh perhaps inadvertently inherited colonial forms of state. I don't always blame them because I think it is one thing to blame them and uh, not look at uh, the structural reasons behind uh, such, uh, such inheritances. And then once we acknowledge it, then we go behind and deconstruct the inheritance. And you know that's how we sort of make progress in sort of unlearning and trying to sort of then le- relearn things that we need to relearn. Um, one of the problems with international laws and its state centrism is that when new sites of peripheries were created, um, uh, 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 you know, the older peripheries were forgotten. For instance, we are a perennial periphery. I am not just periphery, but this is peripheries, periphery. Delhi's periphery, Darbanga is peripheries, periphery. So if you look at it from this way, then you realize um, there are in larger countries such as India and China or Brazil or Argentina, the huge countries, uh, there is periphery, this periphery is periphery. And so far we have, and if you're, we are battling Europeanization or uh, Eurocentrism, naturally the kind of anti-Eurocentrism that peripheries periphery will produce is going to be different from the simple peripheries like Delhi or, or Colombo, right? So then you begin to realize that international law 
at least in my narrative of omnipresence, is really, really tied to geography, a sense that I've, I've been developing since I turned to semi-colonialism. How did I turn to semi-colonialism and kind of say, well, we must not always conf conflict colonial and semi-colonial situations? Because I started paying more attention to the geography and the nature of the rule. And if you look at the classic definitions of semi-colonialism, one of the reasons behind a country not being fully colonized by ge was geography. Bhutan could not be fully colonized. It was difficult for Britishers to suddenly be in an island and see this kind of geography and it must have uh, spooked them at some point. How do you control it? Because the geographies are very different, even for Indian. Indians living in the plains, mountains are a challenge. So the complete absence of a nuanced view of geography allows you to be in Paris or London and theorize, which is just wrong. It is injecting Europe into Eurocentrism. It is injecting more Europe in the name of the European island. That is you know, I find, it so, I find it so striking that in times when we talk about space and place, you know, and the sense of place, uh, sense of place, and other very critical perspectives on spatial arrangements, yes. right? That international law is still so closely tied to this um, colonial legacies, to this colonial imaginations about the world and its geography. And especially nowadays when we really, in critical research, it's a must, you know, to know at least works on situated knowledges, situated um, history production processes that it's, it's so, it's almost hard to imagine for me as a historian and a big fan of critical geography that there are such big problems in international law. Let me begin with the Oxford Handbook on the History of International Law. Is Nepal mentioned there? No. India is studied. Why not Nepal? India is a big, big country. That's why. Who is going beyond India in the subcontinent to think, well, India, well, India, yes, India. But technically, the foreign ministry of Nepal is older than India's because Nepal was not fully colonized. And Nepal's first problem was to deal with Tibet and China on a geography higher than Nepal itself. So they were completely facing east with India with west. And 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 and, uh, and 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 therefore, if you step into the shoes of a Nepalese in the 18th century, and you talk to a Tibetan stepping into the shoes of a Tibetan and try to understand their conversation, you will realize that what was being produced in Calcutta, the center of the EIST, East India Company, was really not relevant. And if they were they were able to, if in time they were able to prevail over the people of the mountain, they only did it with gunboats and better technology. In and that brings, brings us back to Darbanga. Why Darbanga? Well, Darbanga is my hometown, but more than that, it was a semi-princely state. It was one of the richest, uh, Darbanga, king of Darbanga, Darbanga Maharaj, was one of the richest persons at the time in the whole country, actually. And he was the host of the first aerial expedition to the Mount Everest. So Darbanga was used as a place to gain and construct and perhaps control newer forms of geography that is world's highest range for the purposes of the British. An idea that is central 
to the to, to the theory of Orientalism by Edward Said. What does Edward Said say? He says maps and colonial documents became a way to cartograph knowledge and present it in a certain form. And that I my parallel to Said's idea is that if you look at the legal documents of the colonial powers, British for example, then there is a parallel where customary knowledge is being transformed by virtue of statuary modernity, right? But yet in 1920, when the PCIJ statute was drawn up, you, you gave equal power to customs and conventions, customs and treaty. While all, why? Because my sense is that Europe, when seen from India, can be modern, but you're never truly modern. So of course you always accommodate some kind of ancientness, while medievalism is actually a negative word. So customs as ancient practices find their place in modern discourses while we keep targeting the idea of medievalism. This is also semantic in that sense. Ancientness, so in a funny way, ancientness is more welcome than medievalism. So then you also create a time warp semantically. So when we express, coming to my question, why am, why am I transform, transcending all forms? It's a semantic business. When you begin to sort of deconstruct semantically, then naturally you begin to transcend forms. And, and, and if you have something to share and something to add, you, should be, you become free of the form. You can express this in prose or poetry or any other form. That's so much food for thought and, and so much to think about and so well explained as well. Um, I'm interested because uh, before that you talked about the relation between um, post-colonial states and also this relation to international law and Europeanization of uh, the of state. How do we apply this notion of omnipresence of international law to key principles such as the principle of territorial sovereignty, such as the principle of sovereignty in international law, for example? How would this work trying to build an, up, an approach from, I guess, from the ground up to international law? But how would it try to work to rethink those kind of key principles we still rely on today when we think of uh, international relations and international adjudication, for example. Just because Asian states speak of customs, it doesn't mean that they have actually stopped uh, subscribing to Westphalian forms. In fact, um, some, of the European, some of the Asian states are the biggest, biggest subscribers of Westphalia, China, for example, India, for example, uh, Nepal, for example. So that currency... Westphalia, as the currency of international law, is not going to disappear. It is going to continue. Therefore, when we speak of omnipresence, how does omnipresence would then work within this scheme of Westphalia is the question. And I think omnipresence is going to work because first, by suspending the quest for universalization, you invest the geography with dignity. You invest geography because we speak of self-determination, and by self-determination, we actually speak of investing respect in people. I'm saying there's a parallel to be drawn in areas that the Permanent Court of International Justice said are sparsely populated areas. I mean, what could be more sparsely populated 
than the third four. And it's people and geography, which in terms of inhabitation are one of the oldest regions in the world. So the modernity of state and the ancientness of the existence of, uh, of its people coexist in that space. And that clearly mimics how international law works, a Westphalian construct existing with people with ancient customs. So by turning, by completely rejecting universalism as the quest for international laws, expansion, we completely, we focus inward and we say, well, let's invest some respect in this geography because it couldn't be conquered. It remains semi-colonial, colonially remember, simply because the colonials could not conquer it. Respect it for that. If pockets of resistance against colonialism have to be built, is it not natural for us to actually first start with Bhutan or Nepal that escaped colonialism because of its geography? In other words, there were people who had conquered their territory, but with all the technology and desire, the colonials could not conquer it. How about, how about investing respect for those people who, could, who did it before and the colonials with all their power and might could not do it? So it means completely changing your glasses, your lenses, and then seeing those territories for a new perspective that I think will only come by thinking of omnipresence as a tool for investigation in international, not universalism. I see so much of a parallel between the polar regions as we, as we typically think of them, the Arctic and the Antarctic and the Himalaya. And it's so funny or so interesting you talk about the PCIJ uh, status because it always reminds me of this uh, Eastern Greenland case yes. of the um, Court of International Justice had to decide which one among Denmark or Norway had sovereignty over Greenland. Exactly. Or in the eastern part of Greenland. Yes. But it's so interesting that when they, get, when they went to Greenland mentally, when they projected themselves in Greenland, they were like, well, actually, Greenland might not be, or the exercise of sovereignty might not be the same in Greenland just because of the physical limits of Greenland as yes. a territory, as an island, because it's it's so remote, it's so inaccessible. And it, I mean, it was so inaccessible both physically because of the ice, because of the physical conditions, but also mentally because it's so remote from Europe, yes. because it's so far away. So the court in its reasoning was like, hmm, maybe there's some kind of, yes, as I said, polar exceptionalism to it and yes this is the link i'll make sorry there's no real question in in that but this is the real link i'll make to the polar region this is an area. excellent link to make given that the situation in himalayas although very far off was very different because although sparsely populated tibet was right in the lap of the himalayas you know at, at that height for thousands of years tibetans have lived differently and when the, the, when the post-colonial Chinese state unleashed itself on Tibet, a number of Tibetans walked that geography to cross those mountains and landed in India where we welcomed them. And that has been at the core of our dispute with China, the fact that we received and gave uh, space to the Tibetan government in exile. If you look at the history of the Tibetan government in exile, they literally walked across the mountains that the PCIJ calls sparsely populated areas. So again, you see that the experience of the PCIJ is very European. And that by practices in these areas of uh, the world, the Himalayas, 
people have actually already proved them wrong by traversing those, those lands. It is only because Europe transfers to the rest of the world a certain form of knowledge as acceptable knowledge that other forms disappear or become less popular or not worthy of investigation. Europe is to international law what is Starbucks to coffee. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's such a great way to conclude. It seems to me, from what I've been um, hearing so far, that legal scholars and practitioners really need to develop and foster sensitivities, like sensitivities to landscapes, right, to histories, like situated <laughs> histories. Um, and... Um, I guess it's pretty, it seems to be pretty tough <laughs> because for so many decades and hundreds of years, legal scores, they had to be and had to perform so neutral, right? Or so emotionless that perhaps nowadays when we talk about, um, yeah, kind of being more attentive to what's going on and to the experiences, both historical and present day experiences of people in different places, it might be a real challenge. It is indeed a real challenge. In fact, uh, study of the Himalayas is only part of my book project. The other part, the other half looks at uh, the South China Sea and I make a comparison between Himalayan sensibilities versus the archipelagic consciousness, which is much more modern. Uh, in terms of law, uh, which developed with the UN Convention on Law of the Seas, and how these two sensibilities also interact within international law. So it is about all of Asia, you know, the mountains as well as the sea. Uh, but my, uh, but more particularly, my focus in the second half of the book is to study the South China Sea and to explain how uh, that how Asia has two leading forms of uh, uh, you know, nationalism or national sentiment, one that comes from the land and mountain, the other that comes from the sea, the archipelagic consciousness. And it was because of the 1982 Law of the Sea Convention that Indonesia and Philippines were identified as large archipelagic countries. Now, it's a very simple thing to understand. If we are, So far, we have been talking about being at the top of the uh, world, at the roof of the world, and customs and lives of the people governed by the snow there or the territory, the kind of vegetation, the kind of animals that exist. Naturally, uh, in the archipelagic uh, consciousness, uh, a country is stitched from a number of islands. So, for instance, Indonesia is a combination of some 17,000 or 9,000 islands. Uh, you know. So naturally, for them, uh, the country is not territorial like India or China vast stretches of territory that you can uh, walk down on a horse. You cannot do that in, 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 in the Philippines or in, um, in Indonesia. So just by calling us Asian states, you're actually again painting us with a white brush, right? So just as we have to make a distinction between colonialism and semi-colonialism, likewise in the post-colonial world, we have to make the distinction between landed nationalism versus archipelagic nationalism and they work both ways uh, 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 they work differently and why china is at the center of the dispute is because china is trying to 
import. It is the biggest importer of the, the Occidental idea of sovereignty and then tries to use the idea of sovereignty on the land to make an argument in the sea that really cuts into the sovereignty of archipelagic countries. So the, the dispute between China in the, uh, and the South China Sea countries is because China is heavily importing Western forms of knowledge about international law, that is uh, territorial sovereignty to project it on countries where the, their sense of the state is built on archipelagic consciousness. I really love this idea of bringing different forms of knowledge to rethink, uh, as I said, again, key principles of international law, such as sovereignty, and not only to export the... I mean, we we often think of the principle as such, but then the interpretation and the application of that and how we can yeah build from other forms of knowledge as well. And I think that's something a lot of legal researchers working on the Arctic try to do as well. Uh, looking at indigenous uh, ways of knowing the world and indigenous uh, legal systems to try and rethink sovereignty or try and rethink uh, the relationship to law and the land, to law and earth, basically. I actually think that it's a beautiful point uh, to wrap up, perhaps, mm -hmm. and say that we're very much looking forward to <laughs> to your coming work. And... Um, it's really intriguing and refreshing, I would say, to hear these perspectives and to bring them into our discussions on, on the Arctic. Yes, thank you so much, Rebecca, for, for joining us uh, today. If people want to follow your work, uh, can they follow you on social media, for example? Or uh, I, I I'm quite active on Twitter and one of the reasons actually is to actually, you know, one of the central reasons behind being active on Twitter is to meet people, uh, like-minded people, because you might not always know all of them. And Twitter that way allows us to sort of, you know, kind of see what others are arguing. In fact, on Twitter, what we do is we try to, uh, you know, further streamline our thoughts and try to sometimes state our thesis. I really like that about Twitter. So in a way, I use uh, Twitter to actually converse with people and connect with people. So they, of course, there, but largely, um, uh, you know, on the standard repositories, you know, where I post all my working papers or published papers. Yeah. Uh, but they can always write to me and I will respond to them with my published work. Uh, yeah. I mean, reaching out these days has become quite easy so that 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 is good about this digital globalization yeah.